I'm Daniel Patrick Brennan, and this is Vintage Stories. Welcome back. Today's episode is sponsored by the Giblet Gravels Growing Region, Wine Growing Region. Sorry, I don't want to mess that up. There's a trademark in there that's very important. But what you got to do is go to gibletgravels.com, click on Terroir, then click on About, and check out the annual and yeah, you know, read up there a little bit figure out what's going on with the Gibbler Gravels if you haven't already done so last week when I told you to do so then you want to look around at the annual vintage selection this is the best of the best from 2015 from what was a great vintage an intense vintage by the way not a lot of fruit on the vine that year from a cold spring um, and you want to check out that annual vintage selection. I don't know that a lot of people know that this wine is up for the public. A lot of it goes out to media and press all over the world. These beautiful packages. It's a group of red blends and some uh, Syrahs. But they're available for you to check out. Of course, the price is a little dear. I heard somebody say that to me this week. But you're talking about an amazing collection of wines, and good luck trying to get all these wines uh, in one package yourself. And let's think about it. This is pennies on the dollar to some of these Napa producers in Bordeaux, which can be hit or miss, and Napa, which can be big and maybe not that much uh, excitement about the style. Though uh, I like a big cab once in a while. But anyway, getting back to the <laughs> Gibble Gravels. Um, a real special selection of wines so check that out uh, this is all part of the series I've put up a new sort of folder on the website or image and you click on and you can go in and this will be now I think our second episode uh, in the Giblet Gravels we've got a I've already got a couple more that I've spoken to so anyway um, yeah we're also sponsored by Decibel Wines of course uh, go out hashtag Decibel Wines and hashtag Drink Decibel I am Decibel Dan at Decibel Dan on Twitter and Instagram. Facebook is Decibel Wines. We've got the great website and store up there shipping to the UK, Australia, the US. We're about to put up Europe as well. So what you want to do is use the promo code DBPodcast at checkout. You'll get 10% off your first order. Today we are speaking with Warren Gibson, uh, who I... Once again, I've known Warren for years and found out a lot of interesting things about him. I knew he had spent some time in Italy. I didn't realize the extension of his vintages in southern Italy. Uh, and just his whole life experience is interesting. This is going to be one where you may have to rewind and go back and listen. Uh, Warren speaks fast, and he puts a lot of information in there. And there's a lot of great information. So if you got to stop, what did he say there? Collect it again? Maybe listen to it twice. It's probably one of those, or go back and listen to it a month from now and see what you could collect. Uh, I actually had to sort of rewind him towards the end and go back and get more of his history because we were just going on and on about uh, a lot of other things. But when I think if you, if you, you know, when you look at a craftsman and you look at an artist, uh, which is probably two different descriptions for a winemaker, you, you know, you want to look at some individual work, you want to look at you know um, what what they've achieved with certain wines uh, but you also want to look at the body of work and when I think you consider those two things you're talking about a guy uh, in Warren Gibson who is up there with some of the best winemakers in the world he's got a a long history at Trinity Hill 
They've had some stunning, amazing individual wines, but I was just in the tasting room last week and every single wine I tasted was cool and interesting. And uh, if you're looking for a really good Hawks Bay cellar door experience, I really suggest going into Trinity Hill. Uh, and then let's not forget about his amazing, almost like a totally different style. Uh, I mean, you, you see his fingerprint on both wines, but his La Colina and his Balancia wines are, are just something different completely. You know, the fruit's different. They come from up on the hill above the Gibbler Gravels, but uh, you're just talking about a great winemaker and a really good guy. And uh, I hope you guys um, enjoy the podcast. There's a couple contentious things in there about the Gibbler Gravels, which I found really interesting. So enjoy that. And one thing I always forget to say is if you have any comments or any, um, you know, if you want any correspondence, just email us at decibeldispatch at gmail.com. And uh, enjoy it, guys. Cheers. I'm here with uh, Warren Gibson from Balancia and Trinity Hill up the road, and uh, we're talking to Warren about Warren, but also a little bit about the Gibbet Gravels. I think we wanted to um, get with, but it's just on to me. How long have you been at Trinity Hill? I uh, just sort of work it out based on uh, my my son's age. So we moved here uh, and started a family in the same year. So that was '97. He was born '98, January '98. So it would be keep getting mixed up whether it's 19 or 20 vintages but it's i think it's 20 yeah so 20 years yeah Yeah, you're always like a year more than you think because i'm the same boat was like moved here in 08 even though we i've just finished 10th vintage and 17 uh so but your first vintage was 98 uh, no it was 97 so oh. it's possibly 21 when you think about it because you've got a couple of zeros in there so yeah. <laughs> i think it's tr- it's possibly 20 years and 21 vintages now. 97 was not a great one 97 was a very cool vintage um i wouldn't say for us it was a it sounds like a winemaker again here right but it wasn't it was a, a very good vintage for us because we had quite young vines and uh we bright fruit yeah really lovely there. fruit and and i was able to sort of get through some some sort of weather and uh, yeah, we made some excellent wine in our first vintage in '97. And, and how long was Trinity before that? Like in it? the owners, uh, so originally three uh, partners, which is part of the sort of Trinity name, but the owners, our English owners, Robert and Robin Wilson uh, from the UK, bought some lands where the winery is situated in '93, uh, and the first vines were planted in '95. So, and that was they also bought about uh, 20 hectares of of the Gimlet Gravels, or it wasn't called the Gimlet Gravels, but off, off Gimlet Road. Um, so they didn't, the original Trinity Hill vineyards were just kind of around the hill, but not on the gravels? Is yeah, so the, the winery was, the site was, uh, they bought uh, 45 acres, uh, hectares, sort of 8 to 20 hectares uh, around the winery with the two hills behind there. Hmm. So that was mainly for the site, not for the, we have a very small, vineyard there uh, with some Chardonnay now but it's uh, really it's more for the site so and they actually have a house on the back of the mm. on the back of the uh, the hills to the left and I somehow managed to 
purchase uh, 15, 15 acres off them in 97 and plant our own little vineyard uh, from 98. So, yeah, we go back uh, 20 years for that too. And, and uh, what do you call the Giblet Hill or something? Don't you have like your own little <laughs> oh, appellation yeah. for well, that? Well, yeah, sort of half and uh, mock uh, sort of Gimlet Heights, yeah. Gimlet Heights. <laughs> so it's it happens to be possibly the best uh, sort of vista, or Gimlet Vistas maybe. Uh, yeah, so it sounds like a, the ghetto name for the Gimlet Gravels <laughs> or something. That's right. So we um, we we have a lot of, I like to put a toll uh, gate because we, we tend to have a lot of visitors to come up and see. It's a, it's a great view, not just of, uh, you know the Gimlet gravels and and see back down towards Bridge Par. Can you see the ocean from? Ah, uh, we can see the ocean if you've got good eyes. Yes, yeah, on, a, on yeah. a less than hazy day, and yeah. you can sort of see the 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 trees of Marine Parade and Napier and. Right you can it. just see it from across the street here, uh, but I would imagine that much closer. You can sort of see the horizon of the yeah. You can yeah. see Cape Canavas, and uh, so it's oh, quite a cool. panoramic view, and wow. and uh, it's it is beautiful. So, cool. uh, but the vineyards were were down Gimlet Road off off the left of. Gimlet Road, and now, now um, 20 years later, uh, Trinity Hill owns about 42 hectares of the gravel, and then three or four different sites. You guys have that, uh, the old, was it Mark Blake's vineyard there now too? Yeah, that's a bit of history there. So that original vineyard uh, was owned by Gavin Yort and uh, David Irving, who I don't really know, but uh, over time the, the ownership changed. And uh, so Babbage, uh, uh, they took the fruit and made... Um, Iron Gate, yeah, uh, both Chardonnay and Reds from that site, uh, and I don't remember exactly the years, but uh, Gavin and and David, I believe, sold to Trinity Hill uh, late nine, uh, late. I'm getting decadely challenged yeah. as I get old. <laughs> uh, uh, late two thousand and eight, two thousand nine, I think, to Trinity Hill, and then uh, we actually sold to Mark Blake. Uh, who was is a Californian uh, gentleman that came and uh, totally replanted the block uh, amazingly well uh, to, to mostly uh, Bordeaux varietals, and uh, and then Mark sort of uh, lasted five years there and then sold back to uh, not necessarily exactly Trinity Hill but it's it's back in our hands now and yep. uh, so we have that vineyard which is uh, the original Iron Gate vineyard and I believe Babbage. Um, they, they either already had land next door or bought land next door and, and they make their Iron Gate wines from, from the neighbouring vineyard now. So it has some real history. It's actually quite a silty block in a lot of cases. Um, so that's kind of where the river dumped a bit? Yeah, right? it's a meandering sort of river. So that's the old path of the uh, the Nara Nordor. So 1867, uh, um, back 10,000 years, that was where the river was going. So uh, it's... Uh, no, sorry, not no, no. I've got that wrong. So, ten thousand years ago, the the river went um, the bridge path side of uh, Royce Hill, and then then got banked up and went to the, I guess the west of Royce Hill. And yes, yes, went through through that vineyard up until eighteen sixty seven, where mm. where now the the big shift big happened. shift went uh, towards Fern Hill. So very young uh, soil, really, in a lot of cases. And so most of the. Trinity Hill plantings are all down Giblet Road there on the left, basically, or is there some now spotty other yeah. spots, you know? <laughs> we don't really have a, um, a perfect domain in terms of uh, our vineyards. So we have three three Gimlet Gravels vineyards uh, making up 40 hectares and then a little bit of Gimlet Gravels out in front of the winery where we've got some Chardonnay. And then it's a pretty good amount. It's good. good it's a good size. It's a good yeah. size. And uh, reds, obviously, but Chardonnay as well. We tend to have our Chardonnay uh, in the much heavier, siltier yep. phases, and so that 
that vineyard we've been talking about uh, is now called uh, Tin Shed. It's a, you know, not, not a lot of thought went into the name uh, because uh, <laughs> there is a, a shed of that, uh, you know, that uh, style in the It happened block. organically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we have our Chardonnay and uh, Marsan uh, in the more heavier phase. I'm not convinced the Marsan um, shouldn't be on stones, but we've, we've made very good wine from it on the heavier soil. So, yeah, we believe... Chardonnay and uh, and Merlot are much more suited to the to the slightly heavier soils sure. uh, and the Cabernet family and Syrah uh, we have at the extremities of that vineyard uh, which is much more gravel and, uh, and, yeah. yeah so and our vineyard nearer the river which is I guess uh, with Craggy Range the closest to the now river path is much more stony and and warmer and I believe are more suitable for sort of Cabernet and Syrah than. The other side of the road, but everybody has you know little little pockets and. You guys get quite a bit of Chardonnay from off the gravels. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a very big fan of of uh, Hawke's Bay Chardonnay, and I think the Bridge Bar area is uh, one of the absolute highlights for that. But also, there are lots of other sites, you know, in Tewonga and and inland and and uh, some of the hillside, cool hillside sites around with some sandstone and limestone that uh, you know can make amazing Chardonnay. Yeah, it uh, seems like, uh, well, to put it this way, I've been driven out of the Chardonnay business <laughs> because I've, I've only bought a little in 14, and then I started searching to make some in the next couple of years, and it was like, man, I, you know, I'm not going to make a $30, $40 Chardonnay. If I want a good fruit, I only want so much of it. Mm. I'm not going to manage the block totally myself, so I guess I'll make Viognier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely been a, a, a revival with Chardonnay, and I guess great Great pricing and everything along along the way comes with it. So I think it's a very exciting category, and it's one that's you know it's not going away. It's been sort of like an icebreaker. It just keeps on going through fashion in terms of up, down, and otherwise. And Chardonnay's, you know, probably five, ten years ago, wasn't on everybody's uh, front of their tongue, but it seems like it's having a great revival. And, and I'm probably biased in saying it, but I think Chardonnay and Hawkspace, uh, you know really the white wine that we should be really focusing on so it's the one i mean it's the one for me i think throughout new zealand it's mm. been uh something that uh, was reinvented for me when i moved here i you know it's so expressive here and it's got a fruit element that uh i mean i found it in other chardonnays from france or california or but in dribs and drabs whereas i just find it so much you know I don't know if it's winemaking or older vines or what it is from these other places, but uh, in New Zealand, from top to bottom, Kume down to Otago, you just get these amazing different styles. And I mean, we had a, a couple last night that were really good in a tasting we did, and they're just so distinctive, you know? Yeah, um, I think uh, also uh, the great thing is that the consumer and your the people buying your wine are quite, yeah, they're quite knowledgeable and, and they're quite happy to tell you uh, quite honestly about what they like and don't like and i think it's a it's a maturity in the market as well and there's there's definitely uh, a huge range of styles and you know uh right from you know the big heavy sweet sort of yellow wines uh sort of more of the past uh to things that go very lean and, and skeletal and everything in the middle so uh, there's something for everybody and, and possibly why people still get a little confused about what Chardonnay really is, but yeah, I was just thinking when he said the consumer, you know, there's a story. We were talking about stories before we started recording. But the story of the, you know, what works in the market and consumers and things like that. And I was thinking of, you know, everybody thinks Kim Crawford is this big giant Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc producer, which they are. But 
I'm pretty sure it all started with the release of their unoaked shard, and it literally said unoaked Chardonnay, and and it came out. I don't know how well it did in New Zealand, but it was like exploded in the U.S. Uh, because everybody said, "Yeah, well, I, I don't like oak all the mm. you know," and then, and but what it actually did in the long term was open up Chardonnay again to a lot more people, and then they eventually went back to drinking, you know, maybe uh, slightly more uh, oaky or you know creamier styles, things like that. Um, but it's it's kind of an interesting little blip in the story to shift gears, and it probably has happened in, in other <laughs> other things as well. But. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, it's the Chardonnay thing, isn't it? People that don't want Chardonnay, but they're quite happy to. To, to buy and drink Chablis, it's like, but I don't yeah. like Chardonnay, but I love Chablis. So, uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, just buy it. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, yeah, you guys have had, uh, when I first got here, uh, Trinity Hill seemed very well established, and you've sort of seen, I don't know, ups and downs, but sort of a lot of different changes in uh, Hawke's Bay. Um, what has been for you the biggest thing that you've seen, at least from the time that you've been here, uh, or has it just been like a slow climb? I know we had the G- the global financial crisis sort of shook things up a little bit for us. I don't know if it hurt us as much as some other countries, but um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, you know, we might need more than a podcast to discuss yeah. this one. But, uh, listen, I'm a salaried employee of the company and always have been, so I've not really ever had any shareholding to discuss the ins and outs of the beginnings and, and the, some of the, the, the path to where we are now other than... Uh, the, well, I mean, also in just what you've seen in Hawke's Bay. Yeah, listen, I think uh, I think um, Hawke's Bay, from a, a wine quality point of view and a range of varietal point of view, uh, is absolutely the place that motivates me to make wine in, in New Zealand. And uh, we talked about Chardonnay and uh, obviously the historical strengths with uh, the Merlot Cabernet style and uh, the sort of Syrah, which is the new star. Uh, mm. however, however, I guess there are some... Some other sides of the coin with this, and that—that's not what um, the average person that thinks about New Zealand wine outside of New Zealand uh, is really thinking in terms of what our strengths are. So it's obviously Sauvignon Blanc from Marlborough and and, uh, and Pinot Noir from more than one region. So uh, that's always been Hawke's Bay's uh, slight uh, struggle in terms of the image of what we do best, and and uh, also we're making great examples of varieties that can be done, can be. Uh, made in a number of other countries so i think we still have that challenge and that marketing um, mm. um yeah you guys are muttering the water a bit too by making really good hawks bay pinot so yeah so so <laughs> trinity hill uh we we have sauvignon and pinot as a big part of our export program particularly for the u.s and and we have our, our wineries now owned around about 70 percent by u.s investment so the great thing is that is that we're back into the u.s uh, market after a couple of um Pre, previous uh, goes at it, and uh, yes, we have to. We really have to have Sauvignon and, and Pinot uh, as that entry. Absolutely, yeah. and uh, then uh, you know, at good price points, uh, where with the exchange rate at the moment, it's it's uh, it works. Uh, and then really uh, bring in our other portfolio that we're probably more known for, definitely more known for domestically and probably internationally as well. So the Merlot Cabernet or Cabernet Merlot based wines and and uh, Syrah particularly for us, we sort of like to own that category as, as much as we can in New Zealand. Uh, and that's been a, a struggle, as you know, uh, Syrah in the last 15 or so years in the US has, has had its, uh, its own difficulties. And mm. so we're working you know, hard to, to really position uh, what for me is the one variety that 
says I'm from Hawke's Bay. So you know, for any of the varieties that we make well here, I think it's Syrah that says I'm from I'm from this place, and uh, that's really what's given Sauvignon Blanc uh, and Pinot Noir its its position. Is it's actually tastes like a unique product and uh, something that people can really grasp. So yeah, I think the Psalms can really get their head around it too. From my experience of being out pouring wines in the states, you know, they can. And I, I guess for certainly fine wine, it starts with, with the Somme and the wine buyer, and they seem to get their head around it, and they can, you know, at least hand sell it, whereas the red blends are, even, are is a bit of a tougher category for us to say, well, I th- wait, I thought you made Pinot and Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc and Syrah. And well, well, we do those two. <laughs> They're actually really good, and that's the longest history and everything. But um, maybe it's pretty similar to what you said, too, where it's, some people are like, yeah, I don't know, really like Syrah, but I drink a lot of Rhone, mm. you know. <laughs> it's that same old one. Yeah. So, uh, but I've seen that, and I and I have seen a lot more Trinity Hill wines when I've been in the states last year, year and a half. I've seen it pop up in Virginia and DC and New York and places like that. So yeah, that's cool. Yeah, no, that's great. And uh, have you been over there a bit to do? Uh, yeah, I've uh, generally done since the uh, the shielding change. Uh, I've been well, averaging a couple of trips a. That's good. Uh, yeah. So yeah, and uh, yeah, we're still we're still got a lot of work to do, but we're definitely seeing we're past the the lag phase and hopefully get into the log phase. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's an interesting place to visit. You know, I think it's exciting. Uh, there's a lot of people. Seems like everybody's studying to be uh, their WSCT. <laughs> there's a lot a, of wine it's knowledge. A, it's a great uh, it's a great trip for me. Uh, of course, people. When I get back, say, well, how was your holiday? And it's definitely not a holiday. No, uh, it's so full it's, on. As you yeah. know, it's bouncing from airport to city to airport to, you know, and... and uh, Domestic great... flights aren't as nice as they are in New Zealand either. <laughs> you, don't want to, you don't want to necessarily miss your plane, no, yeah. or get caught up in security. But no, people don't really want to hear that story. It's, it's an amazing... Um, you know, most wine regions and most places you go to sell wine are uh, pretty cool. So, And I've got to a number of cities that I've never seen, uh, mostly inside retail bars and restaurants, uh, yeah, but yeah. occasionally get out to see the actual city. So, where, where, What was new for you that you liked there? Uh, well, I mean, uh, Texas. Uh, yeah. Texas, so it's obviously Dallas, Houston. Uh, Houston is crazy. Yeah, it's a big it's, city. It's uh, nuts, man. Because I had heard years ago that you know, I'm from Philly, so I heard oh, Houston just blew by Philly in population. This was, you know, maybe 10 years ago, yeah. 12, 15 years ago. And of course, from Philly, we got a chip on our shoulder, and I said, what's the big deal? And I went through Houston, and I was like, okay, I see it. It's like <laughs> highways upon highways, and it's nuts, yeah. man. It's There's like four parts of the big city, and it's like, but the wine uh, market is encouraging there. Absolutely. Yeah. And Austin, yeah. is, Austin is like a sort of a, a slightly different uh, yeah, city. Like but uh, More of a beer and whiskey town. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, probably you, you can settle in there for a day or two if you get a spare weekend. Uh, and then, yeah, mostly around the, the extremities of the country, I suppose. So um, uh, Florida and uh, New, York, New, York, New York City and, yep. and uh, Boston and uh, obviously on the West Coast, uh, LA, San Francisco. So yeah, they all sound like nice places to visit uh, as well. So so you know it's 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 fun and and it's just fun. It's fun seeing our wines get uh, great uh, great recognition and and we just have to work on you know more and more sales and yeah, and, uh, yeah. and and work together as as a as a country and as a region. And I think you're starting to see that. Yeah, well, it's a lot better because uh, when I, I was first uh, you know with my hundred cases of wine or whatever trekking around I would honestly see craggy range on a list here and there and 
maybe something else one every here every once in a while and that's actually not good for the it's probably not even good for craggy you know to be like what's this one wine from this one region where now you're starting to go into you know morton's or uh, del frisco's these big steakhouses and places that have bigger wine lists and you'll see maybe three you know, yeah. which is good, yeah. you know, or, or four or that's, something like that. 400 percent improvement. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. So uh, I think it's a big deal. And uh, But anyway, getting back to uh, the gravels, not that I have any notes here or anything that I uh, want to specifically talk about other than, um, yeah, what I, I think one of the things I've been discussing with people is how they, the association or the wines have come across internationally because of their distinction uh, of style. And, uh, you know, there's certainly, I think it's pretty easy to get a glass of blended red from Bridge Pod and put it next to a blended red from uh, the Gibbet Gravels and pick out some differences. But I'm wondering stylistically, you know, when they do these like Bordeaux tastings, uh, on the one hand, we're saying the Gilbert Gravels are distinct and they're interesting tannin structure and things like that, but then they're also getting confused with Bordeaux at the same time. So, um, you know, I obviously understand the depths of all that, but, you know, if you had to explain why that is to people, why do you think, you know, people who haven't had a Gilbert Gravels or maybe only have had a few wines from there, why, would, why do you think that is? I think, uh, well, you go back to the absolute sort of uh, base level, and it's the so- the soil or the lack of soil and the gravel that that gives the the Gimlet gravels wines their their uh, particular taste. And I think that's uh, amplified when you use uh, the Cabernet family, so Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet from uh, on the, on these soils. And uh, Merlots, are, I'm still not absolutely convinced about Merlot mm. uh, on these soils. And if you go back to the Bordeaux model, uh, definitely Merlot's not generally grown on. These, these stony soils, I think um, that Cabernet uh, gets uh, ripe in a very nice way in that climate in most seasons. So you have that lovely edgy, edgy uh, Cabernet Cassis thing happening. And and Franc is a beautiful variety for, for that little region as well when it's grown on the really uh, warmer parts of the sub-region. And that's something that's not quite understood even within our 800 hectares we have quite a, a range of sites so it's and it, clones and, 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 clones, and yeah. so and, and still very unevolved so we're we're still learning uh we're still learning uh and it'll be a lot of a lot of years in the in the future before we get it close to being absolutely right but why you would maybe uh see that sort of bordeaux character i think uh i think we're uh we've, we're not doing uh anything particularly different to bordeaux in terms of Winemaking, uh, we've got great clonal material, we've got uh, great terroir and great soil. So, yeah, and use oak that has that (laughs) taste profile. So, yes, you can sort of understand that that, uh, if you're raw ingredients uh, in terms of... uh, Do you see a a pushback in that with any of your peers as far as saying, well, um, because I've heard the old, well, we've got to stop calling them Bordeaux. Yeah, yeah, don't say the the B word. Uh, No, yeah, so... the difficulty both on label and just uh, getting out there marketing that particular style is it's quite a clumsy sort of if you say you have five different varieties including perhaps Malbec and Petit Verdot, uh it's a, quite a mouthful and yeah. uh, and so, so I guess you know people have come up with the classic sort of Merlot Cabernet Hawks Bay Merlot Cabernet or uh, you know, California went down this meritage path and, uh, yeah. I think that worked out too well. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I sort of, we sort of uh, give ourselves a little 
whack on the on the on the hand when we say Bordeaux blend, but it, it is some way of categorizing, sort of categorizing it, it. But yeah, it's not yeah. the ideal, and I'm not sure we've resolved the best answer for that. Uh, but we tend to we tend to call it uh, you know the a classic sort of Cabernet Merlot style, which already is you know more words than I'd like to say. Yeah. Uh, however. You got to have like a little tight thing for the Twitter, you know, for exactly. the for the so, marketing people, you know. And so at the business level with Trinity Hill, uh, they trademarked the name the Gimlet, which may not have made everybody completely happy. Uh, so our wine made from those five varieties, yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to say the B word, uh, yeah, is yeah. called the Gimlet. And uh, but that, yeah, there's definitely uh, some confusion as to what that might be. Uh, obviously, um, the back label will. Well, if you have a back label, it gives you the opportunity to describe the varietal mix. But on the front label, that can be very clumsy and, and a lot of print uh, and not that uh, nice to look at. So, yeah, it is a challenge for that particular style, for sure. Whereas Syrah or Chardonnay or varietal, varietals that are just one, then it's a lot easier and a lot, a lot yeah, easier. I, yeah, I don't discount the fact that, you know, people say, well, how why is malbec so popular i'm like well it just sounds cool to say (laughs) same with shiraz 20 years ago in the states you know it's like i think people i mean i literally heard it when i worked at my family's restaurant they'd be like give me one of those shiraz things shiraz you know they just like to say it you know and uh that by the glass you know can generate a lot of sales you know yeah well you know we've seen that Uh, so viognier obviously has some good history in new zealand and everybody got quite excited sort of back in 2002 three four time and but people have never found it very easy to say. We uh, we planted Marsan uh, 2008-9 and now make a Marsan Viognier and, and it's quite I like that wine a lot, by the way. Yeah, it's a cracker. And yeah. we find that uh, it's a much easier sell because people just uh, find it more comfortable. I'll have a bottle or a glass or whatever, a case of the Marsan. They just don't even yeah, mention Viognier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, with... Uh, <laughs> Marsan, yeah. <laughs> so... Whereas some other names are quite uh, intimidating, so we make Tempranillo, which the, you know, I think the average person coming into the tasting room may not have a, a massive grasp of Spanish, and and it's not an easy word to say. And so the funniest one I've had is somebody coming in and ask for a trampolino, trampolino, <laughs> so it's one that bounces around your palate. Sure. Uh, whereas Montepulciano, which isn't necessarily easy to say, has uh, it, it's it's got that sort of uh, Malbec thing. It's like Monty. and Monty and yeah. Monty and and people, you know, I think we could make. Yeah, maybe shouldn't say this, but I think we could make Montepulciano almost any style and would still sell because it's uh, there's something there, and uh, you know, going well, back to more the, of a, it is more of a. I mean, I'm sure there's fine ones, but that's more of a uh, coiffer go, you know, style from Italy. That at least a lot of the Mon- Montes I grew up drinking and being around was, you know, it was like a good wine by the glass. Good, not maybe not necessarily table wine. There's like I said, fine wine of it, but. We're not talking about Brunello or anything no. like that, you know. No. It's it's an approachable wine. That's right. So that helps as well. I don't think people necessarily know what it's meant to taste like, uh, but it's got a sexy Italian name, so yeah, that's half the battle. Hey, man, I'm guilty of uh, being engaged in one of those, so <laughs> <laughs> I, I fell for it as well. <laughs> You've done well. Yeah. <laughs> um, going back to what you said about Merlot, though, um, do you think it's – is it alcohol extraction? Why, you know, because I've worked a lot on the Bridge Pile Triangle, and I find – some of those Merlots from there to be a little fleshier, and I really like those. But I, I've also loved some one hundred percent Killer Gravels Merlots as well. Uh, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that ten thousand years of uh, of soil uh, build up, yeah, yeah, volcanic and wind blowing and whatever form, 
is is basically yeah. For me, better for Merlot. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are pockets of the gravels that are good for Merlot as well, but in general, the gravels uh, suit Cabernet family. And I've yeah, I, I quite recently at the Gimlet Gravels sort of regional uh, annual vintage selection tasting, I was I put it on record to everybody that I think we. We should have more Cabernet and Cabernet Franc and that sort of type and less Merlot. So I'm, I'm quite open about it. Uh, however, a lot of my surrounding colleagues... Controversial, <laughs> oh my gosh. Colleague yeah. wineries uh, yeah. base their top wines on Merlot. So that's just an opinion uh, that I have. And uh, yes, I believe in general, uh, the Bridge Bar Triangle, you know, and this is uh, vintage dependent. Uh, yes, you'll, you'll find that the Merlot's uh, more plump and probably more tastes more like Merlot, mm. which is quite important. Yes, really. yeah, it is. <laughs> But also, um, uh, you know, it does go back to like the year we just had in 17 where um, I think everybody struggled with, with the Reds to get uh, at the end of the season. We, you know, we had a fantastic summer. And then um, where probably some Merlot on the Gibble Gravels with those free-draining soils would have been pretty handy in a year like this, uh, which, you know, we've had before that four really good ones, but... Two of those probably had some significant rain incidents again in March that were you were jumping and dodging a bit. Even 14 had probably, now we say rain at the right time, but it was a little bit touch and go at certain times, you know. Um, but it, I think it is a real advantage uh, in a year like this for the gravels, you know. Yeah, I think uh, that's always been my opinion with the, the gravels versus perhaps other regions in Hawke's Bay is that when you take, you know, it's not just one vintage you're talking about, it's it's you have to make wine. We don't have to, but you generally make wine every year. Yeah. And mm. uh, I think uh, definitely in a very, very dry season, hey, maybe the gravels might just be a bit too dry, but in a very, very wet season, I know where I'd prefer to be. So yeah. I think uh, we, we forget once the wine's in the tank, uh, we often forget about the season. And it's interesting to go back to, to look at some of the climatic data and, and to see uh, how how certain events you know do, do change your you can almost see you can almost taste the wine when you look at the the the, the weather uh, yeah, yeah. and uh, throw the soil and everything else and that becomes a bit more confused but uh, there's definitely a place for for both both regions and the great thing is that they actually taste uh, unique and and uh, different and uh, and there's yeah. definitely blending blending options for wineries as well so yeah it is uh, not to get too hokey but it is like a bit of time travel because you go taste one. Oh yeah, you know I think people will taste the seventeen wines four or five years from now. Or whatever, and go. That's right. There was a hot, hot summer, so there is some something there to these wines. It wasn't two thousand twelve or something where it was pretty cool all year or something. Um, and there should be some intensity that. And I don't know about you, but the whites that came off were beautiful. I thought. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think uh, people probably look at uh, the news and. Yeah, that we've had two cyclones and this sort of thing but in a lot of cases the fruit was off before that and up until then it was like the driest warmest summer mm. in record so yeah it's a lot thrown at you in one season that was uh it was a remarkable season in a number of ways but uh yeah i know we've got some of the best sort of cabernet uh yeah we've okay. ever had and, and um some yeah. chardonnay that's awesome so i mean there's a few casualties along the way um but uh just because it rains doesn't mean it's the end of the world uh, yeah. i remember working in burgundy in 99 and i arrived i think the first day i was in uh working for a, uh, a little property that had eight or nine grand cru uh vineyards uh including le Morichet. and 
it rained every day of harvest, but not much, but it rained every day of harvest pretty much. And uh, I was going to the proprietor, the owner, winemaker. It's like, isn't this bad? He goes, no, no, we, we win a little bit. <laughs> um, and and if, you, if you look back at the 99, um, particularly red burgundies, they're uh, being regarded as one of the, the top vintage uh, of that sort of period. So just because it rains isn't such a bad thing. Hey, we probably had a bit more rain than we'd absolutely like in yeah, 2017. Yeah, yeah. And uh, But, it, you know... The first 150 mils pretty much just uh, settled the dust, but yeah, we didn't need need perhaps all of we got. But uh, that's when it comes down to sort of having your experience and knowing what, what to do when. And, and I think being in charge of your own destiny and uh, being out in your vineyards uh, and being close to your vineyards. And there's been obviously a lot of contract growers that uh, it's been really tough. And uh, and maybe working with big companies that are off site and away from the region, the numbers were never probably going to attract. Somebody, somebody to harvest them, but in fact, in a lot of cases, the the flavors were were there, uh, were there at very low sugars. So it's another it's another story. But uh, so yeah. it's been difficult for some, for sure. And where's the uh, Pinot Noir site for you guys? So we have two Pinot Noir sites for Trinity Hill. So we have one. Uh, we have the most southern vineyard, which we lease uh, in Hawkes Bay, uh, called um, Mangarapa Station. So that's near Prongahau, mm-hmm. uh, and. We have about uh, three, three or four hectares there, and then we have uh, we've a vineyard that we've uh, owned and now actually will buy back fruit uh, called, called a spree, which is uh, about twenty minutes out of Hastings, up in the rolling uh, hill country, and that's sort of limestone sandstone country. Whereas, I think I've been to that vineyard, maybe. Yeah, a beautiful long time vineyard. Ago. Yeah, yeah, beautiful really vineyard. Nice. And uh, so that makes up sort of seven or eight hectares of Pinot Noir for us. The Prongahau Vineyard is argillite, which is uh, quite a cool soil. It's sort of halfway between clay and stone. Uh, one of the soils of Sancerre, actually. So uh, that vineyard was actually purchased more for Sauvignon Blanc, but uh, but the Pinot Noir has been a, a lovely sort of an add-on to that. So, Without giving away all your trade secrets, are you pushing it with any whole bunch or anything, anything as far as all these... Pinophiles are pushing it with these days, or, or, or yeah. Well, people ask me what my my favorite varieties are, and I do I do love sort of the Burgundian varieties, so Chardonnay and and Pinot Noir, and um, and Syrah as well. Uh, in terms of the varieties that we we grow uh, and make here, and uh, and both with Syrah and Pinot Noir, I like uh, a component of the whole bunch thing. It's again, it can take the wine to a different place, and and sometimes that can be a bad place, but you have, it's very vintage dependent, but yes, we we would normally use sort of thirty percent whole bunch. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, and and that wine, and that's uh, it's season dependent. So in the in the warmer years, we tend to use a little more, and in the cooler years, yeah. less. And and Syrah in general as well. So, but you know, there's lots of different ways of of uh, doing that particular style, and and you have to be very careful uh, not to sort of over overdo it, or just maybe make it a stem wine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, like anything. There's a uh, Many ways. Yeah. And uh, speaking of Syrah, your Balancia Syrah, I think um, I always get excited when I taste a new vintage of that because I always feel like you're going to push the envelope as far as style or suit maybe that, like you said, vintage-wise, I'm, I'm always interested to see what you're going to do on a particular vintage, whether it is some whole bunch or, dare I say, a little Viognier in there, mm-hmm. uh, though I don't know how secretive we have to be about that either <laughs> no there's, there's no secrets mate no secrets at all um but yeah there's there uh you've you've done well with that wine um 
And that is that all come from that hillside vineyard as well? So we have, uh, so talking about two brands, I suppose, that we own. Uh, so we have Balancia, which is our, our main sort of parent brand, um, which means balance and harmony in Italian. Uh, so I worked uh, in southern Italy for three harvests as a sort of flying winemaker back in the 90s. Uh, so thinking about doing our own thing and my partner Lorraine uh, and I both being Librans, uh, I was looking in the uh, horoscope and and some sort of uh, quiet weekend on my own at the at the cave and uh, saw this uh, Balancia and, and sort of thought that, that sort of works for us with the balance and harmony type thing and the Libran connection. So we started that brand actually 20 years ago as well. So we, when we arrived, I and sort of negotiated to start and make our own wine at the winery. Uh, but, but we mentioned earlier, uh, I also bought some land or Lorraine and I bought some land uh, from Robert and Robin Wilson in 97 and, and we, we planted uh, this crazy hillside vineyard which we have kept the Italian connection so called La Colina and so we have two wines made from Syrah, uh, one under the Blanche label and one under the La Colina label. So does the Balancia fruit come from somewhere else? So the Balancia fruit will often be uh, maybe some fruit from the hillside that w- w- wouldn't go into La Colina. Because La Colina so, is the top. Yeah, yeah, so in a vintage like 2011 and 12 we sort of protect that brand so all of the fruit would have gone to the second label essentially mm-hmm. uh, not that we call it a second label but that label and uh, then I have it's been a bit of a mixed heritage in terms of the vineyard uh, sourcing but we've taken fruit from the gravels and bridge bar and, uh, sure, and, and sure. Uh, hillsides and stuff so what is because uh, I've had a mate who's worked on that vineyard what is that soil up there it's, so, it's like it's all I heard is it's really slippery <laughs> it can be yeah he wasn't wearing the right shoes uh, so so basically this is uh, this is Roy's Hill which uh, uh, this is where the rivers sort of changed the narrow rivers changed course and gone from one side from the east side to the west side so this is uh, I believe come out of the sea like 50,000 years ago so it's sand it's sandstone with a lot of limestone amongst it and, and uh, obviously some, you know, probably 50,000 years of accumulation on sort of parts of the, the sort of areas that, um, that's that been able to sort of stay on. Uh, but it's relatively steep and, and most of Roy's Hill's not particularly, uh, hasn't been formed in a way that you can plant a lot of grapes, uh, yeah, not easily. It's so it's kind of weird how it, some spots face north and some really don't, you yeah. know, and then there's parts on the south side that actually look great and then they get shaded for a good part of the day and it's yeah it's kind of a weird turning little hillside there yeah Yeah. unfortunately in new zealand in a lot of cases we yeah the geography hasn't really helped us in terms of planting uh beautiful sort of north facing slopes that you might Mm. see the equivalent in 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 europe and other places but uh, so yeah we've got a bit of a crazy vineyard and uh the 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 slipperiness is probably because it's silicon, like it's... You know, oh, it's, I think it was just during winter and it was wet, you know, it wasn't... Yeah. <laughs> you get that, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> but um, the, the amazing thing for us and the, and the great thing is that when we, when we made our first wine from the the property, it tasted unique and it tasted very different to to what we were doing from the gravel. And even if you make the wine exactly the same way, you can absolutely see the expression of the place. And that, to me, is the... Well, for all those blood, sweat and tears, it's, uh, it's nice to see something very positive coming out to the other end uh we also have chardonnay some chardonnay there and uh very recently uh, picked our first little bit of nebbiolo which is more of a fun sort of project and 
and that's uh, yeah, that's cool too. It's, it, yeah. tastes, it tastes like Nebbiolo, which is again it's quite important. That's and, exciting. Uh, <laughs> so we'll, we'll donate that to the charity auction, the the Cranford Hospice auction. Oh, cool, year, so. cool. So yeah, then just really a little bit the first. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, we made it at home. Actually, we, we we took it home to our own little uh, baby winery in the in the kitchen. So. Uh, yeah, it, it was quite fun to, to do that. Go back to your sort of winemaking roots, and and uh, our general philosophy is to do as little as as we as we can, and that's what we don't do that makes a difference, rather than what we do. So mm. yeah, it's sort of a hands off wine, and all hand destemmed and and uh, made in sort of a it's not a bathtub, not even big enough for a bathtub. So uh, <laughs> so it's a cool little wine, and yeah, yeah. The amazing thing is. You get a lot of uh, attention when you do some of these crazy little kooky things, but it's never never going to be making us rich or anything. And we might like to sell twenty five cases or something one day. I, I think it keeps you grounded, and not I'm saying you, but anybody. Uh, but certainly, I'm hearing that and what you're saying that it keeps you grounded and passionate and really in touch with, you know, the you know the history and I, I, like I'm from Philly and I go back and I'll randomly meet. There's like this group of guys and. And, and women I'm, uh, in South Philadelphia, which is the real Italian section where my grandfather and grandmother are from. And they did it when they were there. They made wine in the basement, you know. And it's these guys come up sort of sometimes with the tail between their legs like, oh, you know, we, we wouldn't be interested. I'm like, yeah, man, I want to taste that stuff. That sounds so cool, you know. And they're, and you know, we're, then we're all of a sudden we're trading stories and talking about it. And it's, it is those fun little projects I, I i try to do something like that every vintage something weird off to the side that you know keeps you in touch with the the history at all not just some big vat of a fruit which is obviously fun and important as well but you know to just have something weird like that is really cool that's right i i might have mentioned earlier i did some sort of flying wine making uh, roles uh, sort of in the 90s and worked in hungary in 1992 for about six months and and uh, i think i remember sort of I was only maybe 24, 25 and arriving at the winery, getting dropped off uh, from Budapest airport and <laughs> the translator who I needed to be with because Hungarian is impossible, uh, looked me up and down and said, you're the expert. And I think they made it made it a passion to see whether I was an expert. And, you know, on the weekends we'd be out tasting. And, of course, that tasting was not tasting. It was like drinking. So yeah, I, mean, I remember yeah. some of the – that was amazingly good wines. But, yes, they stitched me up a few times for sure. What do they, they produce there? Oh, lots of, uh, lots of different stuff. I was actually making more of the sort of uh, classic uh, um, French varietals for the UK market. But they had uh, – a range of their indigenous varieties and and uh, lot, lots of sort of musket musket sort of based wines, uh, Pinot Gris, which they call Sucabarat. Uh, it was a big variety and and lots of wines that I can't remember to be honest. Yeah, for, yeah. One yeah. or two <laughs> reasons, probably. But, but more whites and reds. Uh, no, mostly. Well, no, bit of a mixture, bit of yeah. a mixture. Yeah, reds, whites, uh, sweet wine, and uh, um, brandy, which was probably the the killer. Oh yeah, that'll <laughs> do it. So yeah, we're kind of working in reverse here, but. Uh, you were raised in New Zealand, where? Yeah, I was raised. My my family uh, uh, were basically um, they come from Taranaki, or I was born in Hawara, which is uh, west coast, not uh, probably now from from New Plymouth, and so that's uh, that was uh, dairy, uh, and so my father was a, my mum and dad were farmers, uh, and they re- relocated to the Bay of Pliny in in the sixties when I was uh, late sixties when I was only one or two. So my father then got into sheep and beef in the Bay of Plenty in a little town called Caddy Catty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then uh, had some difficulties with that, with the humidity and facial eczema and whatever, and then got in, into um, kiwifruit and 
so mixed mixed orchard things so avocados and citrus and so yeah my very much a farming family. farming background and yeah. my brother and i and to a certain extent my sisters we weren't really that interested in it uh i was the youngest of five and i don't know i, I never showed much interest in in that side but it might have been latent i guess uh and uh so i i started a uh, went to school in Tauranga and then after that wasn't really sure what to do and started a food technology degree at Massey University, which I didn't complete. Uh, but uh, then one way or another uh, ended up working in a winery, the only real winery in the region. Uh, so that was Morton Estate. And I'd actually met uh, John Hancock, who I still essentially work with. Uh, and so we're playing sport, playing cricket. And yeah, he said, oh, I wasn't going back to university and, and uh, he said, well, we need some help. We're going to have a big vintage. And so, yeah, I, I started just uh, sort of as a raw uh, sort of 19, 20 year old in, in a winery and um, spent a lot of my winemaking actually with Steve Bird, who uh, was the winemaker there. And uh, yeah, did a couple of years. Uh, Is that a bird from Hawkesbury? That's so? not a bird from Hawkesbury. No, oh, okay. that's, uh, I don't believe so. So Steve, uh, he started his own brand called Thornbury, which you might uh, ah, recall yes, yes, is now yes. owned by Villa Maria, and now I think yeah. Steve Bird. Wines. I think I just yeah, I just read an article about that guy. That's really random. Like two days ago, right. uh, it's, it popped up on some website, and I said, "Who's Steve Bird?" And then I look, oh, oh yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's so, interesting. So yeah, I loved it from day one. You know, I think probably painted the crusher and did random stuff, but I had a bit of skill, at least with some laboratory stuff. So I was uh, okay, uh, but I was very raw and, and pretty hopeless, I think. But I uh, loved it from day one and. After a couple of years, sort of decided, well, is this going to be maybe a career? So I sort of had a chance to go to California and work a harvest or go and study at Roseworthy College in South Australia and chose that path, which, you know, is probably a sliding doors sort of moment. Uh, and then, yeah, like a lot of the winemakers in New Zealand, that was one of the only real good options. Option, for, yeah, yeah. And I think a great option because it gets you out of the region and, and just from a networking and even now we have, you know, winemaking colleagues in Portugal and England and all, yep. all over the world. So, yeah, I'm not sure if you want me to continue, but after that, Definitely, yeah. uh, I um, briefly came back to New Zealand and then got to speak with a guy called Kim Milne, who's a master of wine, was one of the first, well, he's not a New Zealander, but he, he um, with Bob Campbell, I think he was one of the first MWs from New Zealand, first um, dude around here. Yeah, yeah, so he was starting a um, he was starting a, a project in the UK, which was essentially a flying winemaking project, where he puts largely Aussies and Kiwis into sort of far flung or not uh, places in parts of Europe, and uh, basically places that had huge potential and maybe just weren't reaching them for one one reason or another, and often because they didn't have any focus in the winery. Uh, so you know, not to just get too into this, but what was his like a cut of that what he he had like a fee it was like a company he, kind he was of working for a company yeah and so he was mm. the sort of main consultant guy for that so yeah so i okay. initially went to hungary for six so months he wanted and, good people to work with yeah basically. so you yeah. were you were like the hired help yeah. uh, essentially but yeah you got to travel and and people say well, you know where did you learn to make wine and you know i guess it's what most people say it wasn't necessarily university but that was the grounding but working in a place like Hungary or, or southern Italy where you had to, um, you're on, on the ground and, you know, language difficulties and diplomacy and all these sort of skills where, we, where you really learned mm. how to Which parts of southern wine. Italy? Or? I was down in Puglia, which oh, is yeah, really? uh, yeah, right down. Yeah. And so well, that was with uh, Primitivo and Negramato. Bit hot? Uh, yeah, rel yeah, relatively hot. Yeah, yeah. Rel not ridiculous, but uh, made Chardonnay. Made uh, Chardonnay in Puglia that uh, did very well at one of the international wine. 
won a trophy at the international wine nice. challenge, um, which was quite a quite a thing. Mm. Um, so yeah, you learn you learn that you know climate and uh, soil and everything are there, but you, yeah, you can you can work with them. So I guess, uh, and I look back at where I learned wine, and I think that was probably where I learned to make wine and those experiences. And some of it wasn't ide- ideal necessarily, but it was uh, a real challenge. And uh, I guess. At the end of it, I look back a lot more fondly, perhaps than some of the time during, because it, it can be quite frustrating just getting things done uh, in those projects. But uh, it's weird how, the, like, I look back at some of my early days in Hawks Bay, where I was like on a bike, and it was—I mean, you were just cursing yourself. <laughs> but I now laugh and go, "That was probably the best thing for you know." And I learned the most during those, you know, it was certainly the quickest learning curve. You know, it was, and it's there's no other way to do it. Like you got to like struggle to learn and, and then hopefully you can laugh at it because you got through it. You know, there's no other, I don't know anybody who said like, you know, everything was great and uh, it was easy and uh, yeah. now I'm successful. Maybe there was people like that. I don't no. know many of them. No, you know? You're in the wrong industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's cool. And then, yeah. And then eventually, so we're through the nineties basically where you're, Back and forth to New Zealand. Were you yeah, working for so, any producers here when you like or Southern Hemisphere producers? So I was bouncing between hemispheres uh, at that point. So, and I'd uh, <clears throat> I'd met Lorraine at Rosewithy, who you know she was a brewer before before um, going into Sounds studying like a, wine. A good woman to know. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Australian brewer. Yeah. Um, so I um, I was sort of travelled after. Roseworthy, uh, Lorraine actually went and worked uh, at Delegates uh, with Brent Maris for four, three or four years when he was uh, just, he, she was involved with the sort of origination of Weather Hills and uh, Oyster Bay, actually. So there's a bit of history there. Uh, so, and I was traveling and she, we came to New Zealand for a holiday and then she ended up getting um, a job at, at uh, Delegates in Auckland and lived there for four years. And then I continued to travel doing these flying winemaking type things, but also coming back, I had always wanted to get to Margaret River. Uh, mm. So I think one uh, sort of afternoon at Roseworthy, we decided to drive to Western Australia from Adelaide, which uh, fortunately the car broke down about five hours out, but it's like a three-day three drive. Yeah, it's a um, big So drive. that was kind of a frustration that we never got there. Yeah. Um, so I uh, just put my CVs out to a few wineries and ended up uh, getting a harvest at um, Cullen, which is uh, it's an icon uh, family there, and uh, then met... Uh, Met uh, Vanya Cullen's, uh, uh, I guess, brother-in-law, Mike Peterkin, and, and he had a winery called Piero, or does have a winery called Piero. So I worked actually three vintages, three vintages and full-time there for a couple of years. And uh, Lorraine came and, came and worked over there for a year, and we lived in Margaret River, which... And then it was an, another sort of crossroads time uh, as to... We wanted to start our own little brand at that point. That was sort of 1996. So, yeah, we contemplated doing that sort of thing in Margaret River or, and then I got this opportunity in Hawke's Bay. So, mm. so that was, yeah. And then I guess we also were keen to start a family and be a bit more stable. So we chose the Hawke's Bay option at that point. Um, so I, hear, I hear that from a few people. Oh, yeah, I decided we want to start a family and move to Hawke's Bay <laughs> yeah. or back to Hawke's Bay or yeah, whatever it is. It's yeah. definitely a, a great place to bring up children. Yeah. And uh, of course our kids now think it's boring and whatever but uh I we'll think be they're, back <laughs> they'll be back yeah. when they realize how good it is yeah that's the other story i hear is this the sort of the second act if you will is yes. you know they go away and then they come back and uh because it is a good place well that that might be a good place to leave it because we sort of 
we we rewound the clock there for a little <laughs> bit, but uh, I suggest for those folks listening, they'll probably have to rewind this episode and catch up with all those brands you named and wineries you named because there's a lot of good ones in there. And uh, well, thanks for doing it, man. Yeah. I'm taking a little time out of your day to come down the road for a visit. No worries, Dan. It's like I guess you're on the other side of the hemisphere. To some of the listeners, so it's almost in reverse anyway. It'll, it'll, sound, it'll work its way out. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. Cheers. Cheers. have it a lot of info crunched in that was it 45 minutes or so uh, really interesting guy really enjoyed speaking with Warren I want to thank him again for doing it he's a busy guy the commute was easy for him he's just up the road that is true um, but uh, just a good dude man and and like I said you're probably gonna have to go back and listen to that one a couple times to get all the things that he said there for you wine geeks and up-and-coming winemakers uh, there's a lot of info in there uh, once again any correspondence anything you want to reach out and ask about email us decibeldispatch at gmail.com we'll get back to you remember to go to that giblegravels.com website check out the annual vintage selection pretty cool stuff and decibelwines.com send us send me a note Check me out on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I try to do different things and update some really cool stuff from down going on down here in Hawks Bay. And got some travels coming up. That should be interesting. But uh, next week, we've got another epic dude uh, with Gordon Russell from Esk Valley, who's worked extensively with the Gibbet Gravels and another sort of fantastic winemaker and a really interesting guy. So the hits keep coming, guys. Pretty cool. I'm excited. We're doing this little Give a Gravel series. It's giving me access to some of the, the best winemakers in the world and with some of making some of the more interesting wines in the world. So talk to you soon. Cheers. <laughs>